We live in dark days, our God. How good it would be to know that there is a plan and that we're in it and that it's on schedule. But this is exactly what your son teaches us about in this chapter, in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And what's more, he tells us what we need to be doing during this time and what we should expect during this time and what we should look for that will end this time. Oh, help us to hear and help us to heed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new to this church, I can tell you that in one way all the sermons are exactly the same. Every sermon is a Bible sermon. If I didn't have any Bible to say, I just wouldn't get up. We just sing. <laughs> but each day, each day we gather, we gather to learn of the Word of God. However, that said, some of the sermons are more exhortation, some more stir our affections, some are more informative. This is going to be one of that latter, as I'm going to look at the whole of Matthew 13, verses 1 and 52. This is what we usually do going through the book of Matthew. As we reach each section, we look at the whole section to get a fix on the forest and its shape. And then we start looking at the individual trees and any particularly interesting leaves and fruits. And then we look back and review the form so that we don't miss the big picture. That's what we're doing today. We're looking at Matthew 13. And I remind you, as I'll be telling you more in more length in just a moment, Matthew designed his book in a very deliberate, very artistic way. And the way he designed it, chapter 13 is the heart of his book. Chapter 13 is the very center of the book, so it will pay us well to look at it closely and understand it as best as we can. First then, Roman numeral one, our preparation. We need to do some preparation to understand this chapter. And to do that, I want us to remind ourselves of the big picture. That is the big picture of Matthew's whole gospel. Um, And uh, I sent you out a letter. If you're not on the mailing list, do uh, fill out the card and let us put you on it. Uh, Pointed you to the sermon where I do an overview of the whole gospel. It's a funny thing. It it was, I numbered it as number 126, but on the website it's, no, I numbered it 125, and on the website it's 126. So there's a... uh, there's a, a stowaway sermon in there somewhere bumping the number up that somebody's got to try to ferret out. But regardless, uh, it's in the email with the link, the gospel of King Jesus, the Messiah. And when I taught you about the whole shape of Matthew, I taught you that he shaped it like a, a chiasm uh, or like an inverted parallelism, which I, I can simply explain to you that if we think of the first section of the gospel as section A, then it is mirrored at the end of the gospel by section A prime, which mirrors that section and brings to conclusion what we saw in the first. And then section B and section B prime, section C, C prime, and so forth. And there are enough pairs here that it is F that is the central section, and that is chapter 13. Section A is chapters 1 through 4, A prime is 26 through 28. Chapter 13 is the central part of it. It's the heart of the gospel. And when we studied that, I told you that when when men use this literary device, or women use this literary device, the outward sections and the center section are the most important part. They're all important, but as far as understanding the, the unique idea of the book, it's the framing sections and the central section. So, look at Matthew 1. This is very simple. I just want to remind you what the book's about according to Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1, which is going to be in section A. 
Look at exactly the way he begins his book. He begins his book the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His beginning, this is his beginning as a man. Jesus Christ, the Savior who is the Messiah. Messiah is prophet, priest, and king. Being the son of David, he's the messianic king. Being the son of Abraham, he's the one in whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now turn to the end of the gospel, chapter 28. And we'll just look at the final verses of the gospel. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples in Galilee. And he says to them in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, like the kingly Messiah he is. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, so that they can all be blessed in him as the son of Abraham, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I command you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, there's so much there. I'll, I'll fight the temptation to preach a sermon just on that. But the beginning shows us that he's the kingly Messiah in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that section goes on to show that he's God with us. And the gospel concludes by showing he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He sends them out to disciple all the nations that they might be blessed in him. And he says this age has an end, and he's going to be with us all through to the end of that age. So you see, that tells us the gospel is about Jesus the Messiah. And that gospel is Matthew doing exactly what Jesus says to do here. Teach them to remember all that I taught you. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing with his gospel. So the gospel is about Jesus who is the Jewish Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, who one day will rule over the world. What is chapter 13 about? Chapter 13, which we're studying about today, is the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And it answers the question, if Jesus is the Davidic king, then where is the messianic kingdom? If Jesus is God's Messiah, why aren't we in God's kingdom? If he came as the king of that kingdom, why did not the kingdom come? What happened? Why are we here and where is it that we are? What is this age that he's with us through to the end of? Matthew 13 answers that question. So that, my friends, that's the big picture. And I'm going to try to say this just one time, and I will try to make myself not keep saying it. Particularly if you're new here, I want you to understand this is an overview of this chapter. If anything I'm saying about what comes before is too fast for you, all those sermons are online. And, and we would encourage you to feel free to listen through all of them. And if it's too quick on what we're going to look at, well, that's what we'll be doing for the next weeks. So we'll come back to it. If it's too fast now, just keep coming. We'll look at it in a more leisurely and friendly pace. So that's the big picture. Now, letter B, let's look at the smaller picture, by which I mean the immediate context of chapter 13. That's crucial to understanding what has happened to bring us to this point. Uh, and in that smaller section, we start in chapter 10. Uh, if you want, you can turn there. It's not absolutely essential. But what is chapter 10? Uh, Jesus has been preaching and he's been doing miracles. And in chapter 10, he, get, he lends his authority to his apostles. 
He sends them out on a preaching and miracle-working mission, and he instructs them in this whole chapter as to what they're to do. So they go out as representatives of his, in his name, and with a gift of his power, that they can do the sorts of works he's been doing as his ambassadors. They can speak in his name, they can act in his name, and they bring his message to that area. And so he instructs them on what to do, tells them what to say, tells them what to expect. That's chapter 10. So if you've never read this gospel before, you're going to be asking yourself, well, what happened then? What was the fruit of that mission? How did it turn out for them? Well, that's what chapters 11 and 12 tell us, and the news is not good. The news in chapters 11 through 12 is the focus of the responses to Jesus and his mission, and I call it cycles of rejection because that's exactly what it depicts for us. Uh, The first and last parts of this section, 11 and 12, are very surprising. The first is John the Baptist, who you'd expect to be right in there. And the last is the family of Jesus, who you'd expect to be right in there. And yet John the Baptist is in prison and he's having questions as to why the kingdom's not coming right now and, and, and who exactly is Jesus and did he get it wrong? And Jesus sends a word back to encourage him and to, to remind him, look at what you already know. Look at the works you already see me doing. Don't stumble in me. Blessed is the one who does not stumble. And then to his family coming, they think he's beside himself. They want to interrupt his preaching and try to talk sense into him. And to them, Jesus says, my family is those who hear the word of God and do it. And they do the will of my Father who's in heaven. And in between those, those front and last section, we have the, um, the responses of the cities that the apostles go to. And the response is that they don't repent. The messages repent, and they don't. It may not be that they particularly are violent or vile in their response. They just aren't moved by the message. They don't take the word to heart. They don't repent. And then in chapter 11, we have the religious leaders. So chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 11 shows us the people of the cities. Chapter 12 shows us the religious, religious leaders and how they respond. And how they respond is critical. It's hostile. It mounts to them deciding that they want to destroy Jesus. And if the first and last sections are surprising, this section is devastating in chapter 12, where they commit the, bapti- the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And unable to explain away Jesus' works of power and his miracles, they reach for the explanation that the power by which he does it must be the power of Satan. What the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus, they say, is the work of Satan. And Jesus says that's the unpardonable sin. And there's no going back and no going forward from that. And all of this, and here's the the real big point that we need to bring all this around to, it's not just isolated individuals here and there. Jesus says again and again that these are the sins of what? That generation. That generation. Let me read you some verses and at least write them down. Matthew 11, 16. Do you remember when he talks about the children in the marketplace wanting to say what games to play? But what does he begin that with? He says, to what shall I compare this generation? Not just a few people, but the spirit of the age. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children calling out to other children and telling them what games to play. And they don't like Jesus and John because they won't play their games. Uh, Matthew 12, 39. 
when asked for a sign by the leaders who've just blasphemed the Spirit, or at least their, their group has, he responds, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. So the only sign given to that generation from that point on will be Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Matthew 12, 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation for judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the, repented at the preaching of Jonah. But a greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from far to hear Solomon's wisdom and a greater than Solomon is here. And one last in this section, and it's, it's the big one. It's the one we just read. Following their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he tells the story, remember, of the man who just has the demon who's infesting him leaves, restless, looking for a better place, doesn't find one, comes back to him and finds he's not repented, he's not been converted, there's no strong man there guarding the house. In fact, the house has been set in order and it's all neat and tidy. And so he says, oh, fantastic. He goes and knows exactly who to call. And he has on his little speed dial his seven nastiest demon friends and calls them up and says, let's go to this house. I found a great place for us to party down. And what does Jesus say? He says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. That puzzled me for years. Sounds like he's talking about individuals, but then he makes it be about that generation. But now I think I get it. Because this is what we're reading about in chapters 11 and 12. The response of that generation to Jesus. That the spirit of the age is a spirit of unbelief, hard-hearted rejection of God's Messiah. And yet we see obviously that still amidst all this, individuals can respond. Individuals do respond. Though John is troubled, he does believe. Though his family is not on board, eventually they do come to faith. And obviously he's being followed by disciples and there are some who do uh, in the end of chapter 12 he's teaching some who are hearing the word of God and this is all explained in chapter 11 when he says God has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding but he's revealed them to babes and he says come to me and anyone who's among God's elect God's babes is going to hear that and say I want to come. And He will come. No matter what the generation is doing, He will come. And so likewise, He says at the end of chapter 12, that even when the Pharisees are off, the Sadducees are off, that generation's off, and even at the moment His family's off, anyone who hears the Word of God and does the will of His Father, that's His mother and His sister and His brother, you see. So any individual can respond, but the spirit of the generation is a spirit of rejection. And this has brought them to a climax because there is no getting past the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's no plan B. Remember, they do that and they say, well, give us another sign. And he says, nope, sorry, the sign shop is closed. Sign shop's closed. There's just going to be one more sign for this generation. And that's his death, burial, and resurrection. No getting past it. That's what brings this generation to the point where there is a change in God's program. Not a, not a change to his mind. It's always been his plan. But as far as what Jesus has been doing, there's going to be a shift. I'll show you that in the next section. Let's, uh, 
letter C, acquaint ourselves with the main parts that we need to understand this chapter. There's two big things I think we need to understand in order even to, to be there with what Jesus is saying. We need to understand parables, and we need to understand mystery. So, number one, parables. What is a parable? Let's talk first of all then about the meaning of parables. And many uh, definitions have been given. At this point, I'm not going to try to get too cute about it. I just want to be simple and plain. A parable is kind of like an extended simile. S-I-M-I-L-E. Just like the word smile with an extra I up front. And what's a simile? It's whenever you say that something's like something or it's as something. You know, there's an old phrase, a pretty girl is like a melody. Well, that's a, that's a, 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 a simile. Metaphor is when you don't use the word like. You say, that speech was a train wreck. Well, you don't mean it was literally a train wreck. That's a metaphor. You're saying it's very much like a train wreck. But if you say like, then it's a simile. A parable is an extended simile. Let me, I, can, I can illustrate this for you very simply. If I say to you, oh, well, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And I just leave it there. What's that? That's a simile. But if I say then, well, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman takes and puts in a large lump of dough, and in time the entire lump is leavened. What's that? That's a parable. See, I've taken the simile and made it longer. Or suppose I say, well, the kingdom of heaven is like sowing seed. What's that? That's a simile. But then if I say, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seeds and it fell on four different kinds of soil. And one responded this way and another that way and so forth and so on. That's a parable. I've taken that little simile and I've stretched it out into a parable. That's what these are, basically. They're extended similes. What are they not? Well, they're not fables. Fables feature talking tortoises and talking hares and and talking foxes and pigs. (laughs) That's what's in a fable, you see. And they're not allegories either. They're not allegories. Why? Well, in an allegory, every detail means something. And usually in these parables, every detail doesn't mean everything. The, The parable about the treasure hidden in the field is not about the field. It's about the treasure. So no point really racking our brains about what the field is. It's not the point of the parable. If the other parts have points, Jesus will say so. But usually there's just a central point to these. They're not allegories. And a third thing that they're not is they're not prophecies. Uh, Early church fathers uh, uniquely, and and I read one commentator who took it as prophecy, and he he went through Matthew 13 and, and made this be all the stages in church history. But that, not, that is not what Jesus is doing. He's just telling, he's telling these extended similes to make points and communicate the mysteries of the kingdom. So let's talk a second about that. We've talked about the meaning of a parable per se. Let's talk about the purpose of the parable. Now somebody might say, well, Jesus picked parables to make truth simple and communicate better. Is that right? Well, no, it's not really. It's not really because he expressly says that's not what they're for. Look at chapter 13, verses 11 through 16, and you will see that they actually had a twofold purpose. They ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? Well, isn't that helpful for us? (laughs) Verse 11 He says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
Whoever has to him more will be given. Whoever doesn't have, it will be taken away. Verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes, lest they see, lest they hear, lest they understand. Turn and heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. So you see, it has a twofold purpose. Yes, to his disciples, to the elect, they do communicate truth. They're meant to reveal these truths. And he explains his parables to them. But to the outsiders, they're actually for the purpose of conceding. They're concealing. They're actually a judgment, a form of judgment on this people. Judgment for what, you say? And I say, listen to the first 10 minutes of the sermon. That's what judgment for. For rejecting the Messiah. For rejecting Jesus. For not repenting at the call to repent and not believing. And so Jesus speaks to... uh, here, 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 all you need to do in your mind, if you don't understand what I just said, do it this way. Just think of the Sermon on the Mount and then think of this chapter. Can you do that? Are they the same thing? Very different things. Sermon on the Mount is straightforward, clear, practical, easy, simple. This is parables. And if you haven't had them explained, you're sitting there going, I don't know what he's talking about anymore. I'm not sure what the, I don't know what the point of that is. I don't know where he's going with this. Very, very different, and it's a form of judgment. It's a form of judgment we see at the start of the chapter. We see it again at the end of the chapter where it says he, he wasn't even able to do many miracles because of their unbelief. So their unbelief has brought this on them, has brought these parables, which are a withdrawal of the truth from the unbelieving, unrepentant masses. So that's parables. Now number two, mystery. We see in verse 11... Uh, very emphatically in the Greek text, Jesus fronts the word to you. To you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. But to them, that's also fronted for emphasis, it has not been given. It has been given to his repentant disciples to know the mysteries. It has not been given to the reprobate masses to know these mysteries. Well, okay, you say start, well, start off, what, what do you mean by mystery? You mean like Agatha Christie? Agatha Christie type mystery? No, not at all. Because you might be able to figure out an Agatha Christie mystery before you got to the end. Uh, But you couldn't figure this out. That's the point of these mysteries. These are truths that cannot be known by reasoning or by research. Only by revelation. I guess I got the preacher thing in my blood. There's three R's right there and I didn't even break a sweat yet. You, you uh, You can't get there by reasoning or by research, it has to be by revelation. God has to tell us. We would not know these things even by studying the Old Testament. They're not revealed in the Old Testament. They're revealed right now in the teaching of Jesus. So what are these mysteries that we're talking about? Well, okay, let's eliminate a couple possibilities. Is is the mystery that there's going to be a messianic kingdom? Well, you tell me, is that in the Old Testament? Yeah, pretty much all over the Old Testament, there's going to be a messianic kingdom. Is the mystery that, uh, in another way, God is always ruled and all things are according to the counsel of his will. 
No, that's also all over the Old Testament. So it can't be either of those things. So what can it be? Well, let me take you there. If you're able quickly to turn to the um, book of Jeremiah, then please do so. And by which I mean Zechariah, sorry. But if you're a Jeremiah, you're close. Uh, But if you turn to the book of Zechariah, it is the next to next to last book in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So Zechariah chapter 9, and look at verses 9 and 10. And, and, and don't, don't get too tense. This, my point is going to be an obvious point. Hang on. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. You'll recognize this first verse right away. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a pack animal. Now, by the end of Matthew's gospel, has that verse been fulfilled? The answer is yes. Read the next verse. You see any any spaces between verses 9 and 10? No, they just go right in an order. Okay, what does verse 10 say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. So you need to think of chariot and horses as military uh, tools in that context. Chariot, horse, bow of war... And he will speak peace to the nations, and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. By the end of the Gospel of Matthew, has that happened? No. By today, has that happened? No. Well, no, wait a minute. So verse 9 happened. How come verse 10 didn't happen? There's nothing there in the text that says, and at least 2,000 years later, (laughs) wouldn't that be nice, especially if it was an exact number? Wouldn't that be nice? But it doesn't at all. It just says, he comes, he's humble, and here's the kingdom. And here we are right about here, and there's no kingdom. So what's going on? Now, some people, I think in kind of despair, say, well, it's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, that's the ticket. It's a spiritual kingdom. Well, um, I don't know. As I read verse 10, I just can't get that out of that. <laughs> verse 10 looks pretty physical. It looks pretty this worldly. So what happened? What's the explanation? It's a mystery. And it's a mystery revealed in this chapter. This chapter answers that question. What's the question? The question is, the king has come. Why didn't the kingdom come? And where are we now? And the answer is, well, the answer to the why is chapters 11 and 12. Are you following me? And the answer to the where are we is chapter 13. Why didn't it come? Well, Jesus had been coming, uh, proclaiming its nearness. Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 2. John the Baptist has come preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what's John saying? He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look at the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look at chapter 10, where he sends out his uh, apostles as ambassadors. And look at chapter 10, verse 7. What does he tell them to say? As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, again and again and again. Now look at chapter 12, where they're committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, they just have. They've just said that he does what he does by the power of Satan, 
when in reality he's doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. So we are in chapter 12 and verse 28, and Jesus says, How can anyone enter the strong man's house? Oh, 28, I'm sorry. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And do you know what you never hear again after Matthew chapter, well, after this verse? What do you never hear again? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'd never hear it again. Why? Because they blew it. Because they heard the message, and they saw the demonstration, and they did not repent. They found 15 different ways of not repenting, from the vileness and violence of the Pharisees to the indifference of the masses, but they didn't repent. And so there's a consequence for that. In his person was the presence of the kingdom. Had they repented and embraced him, then in some fashion the kingdom would have come. You ask me exactly how would that happen? I said, I don't know. Just like if you ask me, well, what would have happened if Adam had not eaten the fruit? I just have to say, I don't know, but not what did happen, because he ate the fruit. You ask me, what would have happened had they repented and accepted Christ? Well, not exactly what did happen, but in the counsels of God, it was decreed and foreordained, as we've just recently read in Acts, that this is the way they would respond, and this way they did respond. So, what does that mean? That means there is a delay in the coming of the kingdom. It's no longer being offered to them for instant reception by repentance. It's going to be delayed. And there's going to be a time gap between the first coming of the king and the return of the king to reign. Between his first coming to die and make full atonement for sin and his return to come and bring the kingdom of God to earth. There's going to be a gap between those two points. That is what you don't see between Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, and a lot of similar verses, such as in Isaiah, where you see the first coming and the second coming just looking like this. But now Jesus tells us, actually, in the plan of God, it's like this. And you say, well, but I don't see that in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, exactly. That's why I call it is he's revealing uh, it to us now. He's revealing to us now why there is a, a period between his first and second coming. The why is chapters 11 and 12, and the what is chapter 13. Okay, with me so far? You have to say yes, because I kind of have to keep going. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So now let's do an exposition, and of course this will be a, a, a whirlwind overview. But uh, chapter 13 is very, very challenging. You'd expect it. Matthew's such an artist. And you'd expect that the heart of his book would, would have some complexity, and it does. And uh, I won't kid you, it, it took a lot, of, a lot of blessed work, but I believe that I see what his pattern is. So first, let's look at it in a way that is too simple and yet helpful. That is, this doesn't show you all the details, but it does show you the big picture of, of how, he, how he, how Matthew, arranged chapter 13. And he does it in four sections, and the first and last frame the middle two. So look at the first, which I've labeled A. It's the explanation parable, which is the parable of the sower. Now, with that parable, he gives an explanation, or Matthew gives an explanation from Jesus, and that sets the stage for the next six parables. But it opens the parables. It's an explanation parable, 
at the end of which Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then look at A prime down below. We're going to skip. And he ends with an application parable to those you see who have heard. In the first, he says, the word goes out. People need to hear and understand. Make sure you hear and understand. And then he explains that in the next six. And then his eighth parable, he talks to those who have heard and understood. Look at chapter 50, I'm sorry, verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, which I think is hysterical, but let's move on. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household which brings out of his treasure things new and old. Old Testament and the new mystery revelation. But that's to the one who's heard and been discipled. So these are framing sections. Verses 1 through 23, verses 51, 52. The first is explanation parable. The last is an application parable. An application parable. And between those framing parables are six parables. Does that shock you? What is six? It's, three, it's two groups of three, which we already know Matthew is uh, loved very much, or Jesus loved very much, and Matthew got it from him. So first, letter B, is three parables of growth. Three parables of growth. The wheat and the tares, the leaven, the mustard seed. And then B prime, three parables of worth. Treasure hidden in the field, pearl of great price, and the good and worthless fishes in the dragnet. And you see a little picture off to the right, because I'm sure many have not been here the many times we've talked about what a chiasm is. That's to show you why it's called a chiasm. You see in that little picture, you see an A and a B, and a B prime and an A prime, just like you have off to the left. And when you, lay, when you lay those out and you draw lines between them from the A to the A prime and the B to the B prime, what does that look like? It looks like an X. And what is the Greek letter that looks like X? Chi, we say chi, it's key, but chi. Uh, so it's kind of like an X-asm, but nobody says that. <laughs> nobody says that. Uh, it's a chiasm. It looks like a chi. That's the shape of it. Well, that's the simpler, but now I want to take you through a somewhat more detailed that I think does justice to how Matthew has structured this and hopefully won't be too dizzying for you, but remember what I said earlier. We will be going through this slower. So let's talk about what I call section A. It's a parabolic explanation, and it's the parable of the sower, verses 1 through 23. And the first part of this section is just the telling of that parable. And you notice he just, he launches in. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't explain anything. He just dives right, uh, right in. Um, he's at the, at the lakeside and people start gathering. So he sits down to teach. And there's too many people, nobody to hear him. So he gets into a boat so they can all hear him. And what does he say? He says, Verse 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up, and others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth at all. And he goes on and tells the other two kinds of soil. And that's all he says to the crowd. That's it. You say, oh, but there is an explanation. Well, yeah, but verse 10 says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak? To them in parables. In fact, Mark makes clear that this didn't happen right then. This happened later. 
he, they went up to him in private and asked him this, and he explained it. Matthew just moves it up so we have it all in one section. We have the parable and the explanation, even though the explanation, it's like in a movie when you have a flash forward or a flash back. This is a flash forward. But he didn't say this to the crowds. He said this to his disciples. He just told them a parable, and this is the first one. So he tells it in verses 1 through 9, and how does he close it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I don't want to tell you to, to make marks in your Bible. You might be, maybe you want to print it out, but sometimes maybe print this chapter out and circle all the times you say, you, hear, you see the word hear or hearing. You will find out that the word hear, the, the verb is used 16 times just in this one chapter, and the noun is used one time. So 17 times in this one chapter. Does it give you the impression hearing is a big deal here? Well, yes, it is. Why? Because that's what that generation has not done. That generation is some form or another of the first three soils. They have not heard the Word of God. And how does he describe, let's look at the the explanation of the parable. How does he describe the fourth soil, the only soil that bears fruit? Verse 23, the one who hears the Word and understands it the very thing that generation has not been doing. Three out of four soils are bad soils. Same seed, nothing wrong with the seed. Same sower, nothing wrong with the sower. What's the problem? The heart of the hearer. That's what this is all about, the hearts of the hearer. So you see, this is the first parable because it sets the stage for all the other parables. And that's why Matthew has it set out by itself to frame uh, the six in the middle. Mark 4.34 says, He was not speaking to them without a parable. Them, the crowds. He was not speaking to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So there we go. So it's told in verses 1 through 9. It's explained in verses 10 through 23. He explains parables in verses 10 through 17 in response to the disciples' question. They say, why are you doing this? So that tells us he's not been doing this characteristically heretofore. Yeah, he's used figures of speech and he's used illustrations like any good teacher would, but he's not really just told a barrage of parables. And this is a big change, obviously. So they're asking, why are you doing this? I'm so glad he picked such slow-witted men. I'm right there with them. I'm glad they asked they ask the questions I would have either asked or been too embarrassed to ask. And so that's, that's very encouraging. And the answer is there a judgment on Israel. Israel is hard and has hard heart, will not listen to God's word. They're the ones who Jesus says in chapter 11, God hides his, his truths from them. And so he speaks to them in parable. And he explains that why. It's a judgment on them. And then he explains this parable in verses 18 through 23. And the explanation again is the, the hearers. And obviously we're going to spend a good deal of time on this, but, but just notice, out of four soils, how many soils bear fruit? One. So what percentage is that? Anyone good at the maths? That's 25%. So all this seed is going out but only 25% is bearing fruit. Now that explains why we're here. Because I mean, I don't, I don't believe that this is meant to be, you know, scientifically precise that exactly 25% of people responded, but it's meant to say way more people hear the word of God than respond with faith and repentance. 
And when that happens, it's not the seed and it's not the sower. And if you're a Christian worker who witnesses to Christ, find this encouraging. You should find it encouraging. You sow the very best seed. The sower is the son of man. I mean, it's Jesus in the first place, but it's anyone who sows the word of the kingdom. And three out of four, do not, they do not bear fruit. You say, well, two of them do things. Yeah, they do things, but what's the only thing a farmer wants when he sows seed? Fruit. He wants fruit. Does the first bear fruit? Second? Third? Just the fourth. So, that is the frame to, to the uh, central parables you see. That is the opening parable that introduces us to the parables. And as I said, Matthew moves up Jesus' explanation of parables and his explanation of that parable. He moves it up so that he has it all in one chunk at the start of his chapter. Well, then we have three parables, uh, by the way, and that, that would help you if you're puzzled. Why does verse 10 say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he's only told one parable. Well, that's because this actually comes from later. Uh, by that time, he's told many, but this is for us. Then, number two, three parables of growth in verses uh, 24 through 43. Explained, he, uh, he, sorry, told. First, he, he tells the one of the wheat and the darnel. You, you know it as the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. It's a specific kind of weed called a darnel. Darnell looks pretty much exactly like wheat all through its life cycle until harvest time. And then you can tell the difference. And you really want to. Why? Because Darnell is poisonous. It may or may not kill you dead, but it could blind you. It could make you barfy. It could do all sorts of horrible, unpleasant things to you. You don't want to make bread out of it. So here's a mixture of wheat and Darnell growing up together. The kingdom of heaven now, and by the way, Matthew makes these very, if you, if you could read it in Greek, but you can even see it in the LSB, he makes it very uniform so that we know we should group them. Look at verse 24, he presented another parable to them. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. And that's basically Matthew saying one, two, three. And then the next three are slightly different, you see. So they're grouped as three. It's not just me making it up because I'm, cre- I'm three crazy. It's me saying that Matthew grouped it in three. And now you do too. So the wheat and the darnel is the first. Second is the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32. And, and what's the, well, let me just say, and then the leaven in verse 33. What's the point of all three of these? Well, all three of them, there's growth. The first has mixed growth, the second has explosive growth, and the third has pervasive growth. What do I mean? Mixed growth. Well, the wheat's growing up. Praise hallelujah. So is the darnel. What do we do about that? And the answer is going to be let them both grow up. We'll talk about that in a second. Second one, mustard seed. Itty bitty little seed. Teeny tiny little seed. Put in the dirt. Boom. Tree comes up. If I remember right, I'll have it by the time I preach it. If I remember right, it can get as high as 15 feet high. It gets really, really big from a teeny tiny beginning. And he's saying that's what's going to be happening during this age. Mixed growth during this age like wheat and darnell, but explosive growth. And, and we just saw that in Sunday school, didn't we? Tiny little terrified band of believers when Jesus rises from the dead. Day of Pentecost, what happens? Boom. 
thousands are believers. What happens a little bit later? Boom! Even more thousands of believers. Fast forward to today. What are we? We're 7,000 miles away and 2,000 years away from that start, and we're believers. So you see, from a teeny tiny little seed, you say, oh, you're saying the kingdom has grown? Oh, no, the kingdom isn't here. Let me be very clear about that. The kingdom is not here. The kingdom is waiting to return with Jesus. Well, so what are you saying? Well, what is here? What does Jesus say? What's his phrase? The sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is spreading, and as people believe, they become citizens of the kingdom. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, I think verse 11, Paul says, transfers us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. So yeah, the kingdom has not come, but we're citizens of that kingdom. And we're seeking it and waiting for it and looking for it and laboring for it. Uh, It's gone, but we're here. And so the message spreads and the citizens spread. And leaven... You know, you put a little bit of leaven in a bit of dough and boom, it gets through the whole loaf, uh, the whole lump of dough. And that's just a picture that the gospel goes everywhere. It, it's not just slaves. It's not just rulers. It's not just educated. It's not just uneducated. Everywhere the gospel hurt, it, it goes and the Spirit of God gives new life. A believer comes. It, it, it permeates. We'll talk about that. Okay. I said I wasn't going to say it. Sorry. Sorry. Disregard. So, told in verses 24 through 33 and explained in verses 34 through 43. And once again, he explains parables. Both times end in an explanation. The first section, the second section. Both times he quotes the Old Testament. First section, second section. And in response to the disciples' question, just like the first section, they say, why do you teach in parables? In the second section, they say, what are you even talking about, about the wheat and darnel? Verses 36 through 43, and he explains it to them. And he says, uh, where are we? 36, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, they're the sons of the kingdom. And the terrors are the sons of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. So though these parables are not prophetic, there is prophecy there. Because it tells us, it, what does it tell us that we didn't know from the Old Testament? What does it tell us we didn't know from the Old Testament? It tells us that the king came, yes, and he died and was buried and he rose and he, he sat at the right hand of God, just like Psalm 110 says. But what Psalm 110 doesn't make clear is he's going to sit at the right hand of God for a long time, till, by our standards, till God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And during that time, what's happening? What, is this t- what does this parable tell us? Both wheat and darnel growing up. Both sons of the kingdom and sons of the wicked one. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It takes me all the way back to Genesis 3, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Jesus is the seed of the woman, but we're in Jesus. We're his people. And so both are growing up during this age, side by side. And remember what the person says. You can't, you can't the, the house owner says, they say, well, should we go pluck them all up? And he says, no, don't do that. Wait till the harvest. And what's happening right now? Should we go out and kill all unbelievers? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But there will be a judgment at the end of this age. God will make the judgment and God will 
discern between the wheat and the darnel. God will send the unbelievers off to their eternal judgment and then uh, gather his own into his, his kingdom. So there's the explanation of that, and it's the explanation of our day. Side by side going, and some people say, oh yeah, that's the church, that's the church. Like there's unbelievers and believers. What does Jesus say? <laughs> it's sometimes so helpful to just read the Bible. He says the field is the, what does he say? Does he say the field is the church? It's the world. It's not the church. The church should be only regenerate people as members. But the world is a mixture. This is the great trouble of state churches. One of the great trouble of state churches. So that is the first set of three parables of growth. Next, verses 43, sorry, 44 through 50, we have parables of worth. Parables of worth. Obvious in the first two, not so much in the third. I will try to explain briefly. First, the treasure hidden in the field. And there's a man, and by the way, again, Matthew just signals in his Greek that, that this is one, two, three. Uh, you can, let's see, can you see it in the English? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And then verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And then v- verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. So there it is, like, like, well, like, again, like, again, like. And what's Matthew doing? He's saying one, two, three. And one, two, three, one, two, three. And these all have the common uh, idea of what is of worth. So in the first one, the man's going through the field and he finds a treasure hidden in the field and it's worth so much that he buys the whole field just so he can have the treasure. And then verses 45 through 46, we don't know that the first person was even looking for a treasure, but the second person is. He's looking for fine pearls and he finds one that is beyond measure in its worth and its value. And in both cases, we have the same thing, sells everything to have that. Sells everything to have the treasure, sells everything to have that pearl. So what about the dragnet? The dragnet's cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. What's that about? How does that have anything to do with worth? Well, it's a a little more, (coughs) pardon me, a little more subtle. But you get all kinds of fish, verse 47, of every kind. And verse 48, he separates the fish, the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Now, that's an interesting word for bad. It's actually a word that means rotten. It means worthless. It means no good. We have an expression. We, we talk about trash fish or garbage fish or rough fish. If it's, it's the fish you don't want. And that's the word that's used here. Now, good fish and they got garbage fish. In other words, they're not worth it. They're they're not what he's looking for. He's looking for these fish. So the treasure's worth everything. The pearl's worth everything. The good fish are what he's looking for. This is all parables about growth. And once again, there's an explanation. Each section ends with an explanation and an Old Testament citation. Here, it's just a real quick allusion to the Old Testament. But there is symmetry in all the sections. He tells it and he explains it, that it's the judgment at the end of the age. So there it is, Jesus' answer about where we are. It's a mystery. He needed to reveal it. The king came. The king was rejected. The kingdom will not come immediately. Its, it's coming is postponed. It is assured, but it's postponed. Because the king will go sit at Yahweh's right hand and sit there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. In the meanwhile, we're in that interregnum. We're in that in- in- interval period where the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one are growing up together 
And the word's being sown, and some are finding the precious treasure and selling everything to get it. Uh, But on the other hand, we're all waiting for the time of judgment, which is not now, but it's at the end of the age. And at the end of the gospel, Jesus will say what? I'm with you all the days to the end of the age. That's the age we're in. So we've had the first frame. We've had the, the set of three, a second set of three. And then now we have the closing frame, number four, parabolic application. The explanation is in the first part. The explanation, uh, sorry, the application is in the last. So now these disciples have heard all these uh, parables and they've been explained to them. And what does Jesus say in verses 51 through 52? Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't read that without cracking up. Yeah, of course you did. Of course you did, Bucky. You understood everything. Yeah, me too. But they said yes, and so Jesus accepted that, and he said to them, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom, uh, more literally, everyone who's been discipled, every scribe who's been discipled in the kingdom, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Well, what's the old things? That's the Old Testament citations he's quoted. It's the Old Testament predictions of the, of the kingdom, of the Messiah. Uh, Those are things old, but what are new things? Well, the new things are the mysteries that he's just taught. And when you're taught in the kingdom of God, you know both. You know the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom's coming, but you also know the mysteries of the kingdom, where it is we live, and what it is that God wants us to do. And so do you see this form? So what you call in in literary study, you call it an inclusio, where you start and you end with the same idea. The start says, hear the word. The end says, and when you hear the word, here's what you're like. And it encloses what's in the middle, which is the progress of the word in this age. So, in summary then, what does chapter 13 tell us? Verses 1 through 52. It tells us that this is going to be an age of a lot of sowing and some fruit. It's going to be an age where Sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one will be growing up side by side, mixed in with each other, just as surely as if you'd mix seed in a field. Growing up side by side. Some of them exactly good and and perfect for food and some poison. And you can't always tell which is which until God's judgment falls. And then, then we'll know. It's going to be an age when some are going to be finding the priceless treasure. Some are going to be finding the priceless pearl and they will sell everything they've got so that they might have that. Uh, And at the end of it all will be the judgment and the coming of the kingdom. And then, then the king will come and then all of the wicked will be thrown out of his kingdom. Uh, In fact, look at verse uh, uh, verses 41 through 43. You see this tells us about the coming of the kingdom. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom, His kingdom which is now coming, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So you see there it is. The kingdom will come, but will come after this period which the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom explain to us. So, what now? Hear the word of God. 
Understand the Word of God. Do the Word of God. Sow the Word of God. That's where we are. And hope and look forward to the return of Christ. Expect the righteous and the unrighteous to grow up together. Prepare for what could be a long wait. It has been so far. But judgment is certain. And the return of the King is certain. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, and the the clarity it gives on things that we would never have figured out for ourselves. Thank you for the understanding it gives us. And it is a great source of hope because as we look and we see a world very like what Jesus describes here, we see so many hear the word and so few seem to respond with repentance and faith. But that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And we see so many seem to have poison in their hearts right along those who are trying to seek you and serve you. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And he says the next thing that's going to happen is he will return. Though we look forward to that, we take hope in that. We pray that you'll help us to be faithful laborers and faithful sowers of your word until he comes. Never to lose hope, never to lose the sight of his sure return. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yes.